For how many of you was that song, A Mighty Fortress, a new song? Any of you? Anybody? Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. See that hand. So, it's not new. It's 500 years old. And uh, it was written by uh, the reformer Martin Luther. And this morning we're diverting our study intentionally. Uh, this was planned um, from our study through the seven churches of Revelation to reflect together uh, not on Revelation but on Reformation, specifically the Protestant Reformation that uh, most historians date back to October 31st, 1517 as the kind of the, the beginning of all of that. Uh, what happened that day was that an Augustinian monk in Germany named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or theses or stuff to the door of the university church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he served as a professor of Bible and theology. Uh, it happened on the day that we today think of as Halloween, so it may be possible when I talk about Luther's 95 theses to confuse them with something else that happens to rhyme with that. For Luther, uh, as for Christians of Christ, that was kind of a slow laugh there. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only joke I had the whole morning and you just didn't get it. <laughs> for Luther, as, as for Christians all across Europe, it was All Hallows' Eve uh, or the day before All Saints' Day, something that we've kind of lost to history. You know, if someone were to come to Life Point and begin driving nails into, the, uh, into our front doors, we might have a little heartburn with that, right? Um, might be a confrontation of some kind that would follow that, but... The door of the university church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, just kind of functioned as a great big bulletin board. And in this case, Martin Luther, as a professor in the university, was uh, on that fateful day not not doing an act of violence to a door or some or some act of defiance. Um, but what he was doing was actually was something quite common in the academic community. He was posting a large number, 95 to be exact, of theological propositions, and and by posting them, inviting the scholarly community uh, in the university to, to come together and to discuss those propositions, to debate them. Um, but as, as you may know, he, he couldn't possibly have anticipated the full effect of his actions on his personal life, uh, on his professional career, uh, on his spiritual, his own spiritual life, and the life of the church worldwide. Those 95 theses or propositions that he posted actually focused really on one thing. All 95 focused on uh, what was known as the sale of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and I, I kind of need to explain what that is. There was a uh, an, an invented doctrine. It was not a biblical doctrine. It was it was in, a doctrine invented by some leaders in the Catholic Church. That was known as the doctrine of purgatory. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, another name for purgatory is limbo. And uh, the the concept of purgatory taught that when a church member died, when a Christian died, um, they would go to a place called purgatory, limbo, where they would be purged of 
the sins that they had committed, um, which they had not confessed, for which they had not done penance before they died. And so we think of purgatory, think of purge, think of the word purge, purgatory, being purged of your sins. Um, so that was the, that was the drill. When you, when you died, you would expect that you would go to this place called purgatory and you'd kind of work off <laughs> the, the sins that you had committed that you hadn't been able to confess or do penance for according to the rules of the church. And I won't go into the whole story, but, but somebody came up with this idea, a great fundraiser for the church, a source of illicit income actually for the church, um, was the sale of indulgences. And the concept was that you could buy down your time in purgatory. Um, basically, you know, buy off your judgment or buy off someone else's. And so Christmas is coming. That'd be a great stocking stuffer, wouldn't it? You know, just a little note in a stocking that says, congratulations, Merry Christmas. Your time in purgatory has been shortened by my generous financial contribution. Um, well, for, for Luther, Martin Luther, that, that was kind of the last straw. He'd kind of come to the end of his patience. Uh, with the whole thing as he had been wrestling with uh, matters uh, that were bothering him in the church. But actually, the 95 Theses and, and the whole indulgence thing was, was only a fraction or a subset of the overall thrust of the Reformation of the church. The central question of the Reformation, if I can just kind of simplify it for us, was this. How can a sinful person like me Stand in the presence of a holy God. Or as we evangelicals might express it today, how is a person actually and fully saved from their sins? By the way, that, that whole concept of purgatory flies in the face of the full and final atonement of Christ, doesn't it? it and, and it just robs the cross of its power. There were actually many contributors to the Protestant Reformation as it spanned both the 16th and the 17th centuries. But Martin Luther is kind of considered the father of the Reformation. Um, a couple of other major players would include John Calvin, uh, whose ministry began in Geneva, Switzerland, but who later moved to Strasbourg, France. And so um, we might observe that, that these guys didn't actually know each other. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli ministered in Zurich, Switzerland, was also a major voice among the reformers. Uh, but there were a host of others that around them, people like Tyndale and, and Jan Hus and, and others who in, God was doing a work. God was doing something to, to bring about a reformation, a change, uh, in the church. It would be easy to think of the Protestant Reformation only in terms of scholarly debates kind of dry, crusty theological arguments of a very academic nature. And and there's no doubt, can be no dispute really, that that this history-making movement did in fact represent um, the climax of years of intellectual inquiry into the Bible, into matters of man's relationship with God. But what preceded that were in fact some very personal, internal, spiritual struggles experienced by the Reformers themselves. 
The, the Reformation came out of their own personal struggle with God and with the church. That might sound familiar to some of you. But no one illustrates that struggle for peace with God more vividly than Martin Luther. Uh, Luther was brought up, he was trained like most of the people in Europe in his day uh, to love the church, everything about it from the Pope on down through the, the vast machinery of the church, the systems and structures that dominated practically every town, every village, every parish in all of Europe. He took its claims seriously. He revered the church. He feared the church. He obeyed it. He gave his life to it. Luther's father had wanted him to become a lawyer. Um, But instead, Martin chose the religious life of a monk uh, for an intimately personal reason. And it was this, that, that he felt a desperate need to get a handle on the raging sin that tormented his own soul. And to discover at last the key to personal peace with God. He believed as a loyal Catholic that obedience to the church could obtain for him the favor of God. And so he he took vows of poverty, chastity, obedience in the religious order of St. Augustine, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he, he took the sacraments, he did penance, he mortified his flesh, even took a pilgrimage to Rome. But none of that brought him the peace with God that his soul longed for. Well, let's hear it in his own words. These are uh, just uh, some selected excerpts from his writings. I was a good monk. And I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I might say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. I had hoped I might find peace of conscience with fasts, prayer, and the vigils with which I miserably afflicted my body. But the more I sweated it out like this, the less peace and tranquility I knew. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that anything that I thought or did or prayed satisfied God. While I was yet a monk, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation than I cried out, I am lost. Immediately I had recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. I went every day to confession, but that was of no use to me. Then bowed down by sorrow, I tortured myself by the multitude of my thoughts. Look, exclaimed I, you are still envious, impatient, passionate, It profits you nothing, O wretched man, to have entered this sacred order. But it was as he studied the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome that Luther was captured by Paul's words in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The quote at the close of verse 17 there is from the book of the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, but the righteous shall live by faith. And as, as Luther studied Romans and as he read these verses, that phrase jumped off the page at him. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther explained why it meant so much to him. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, because I took it to mean that just that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And you'll be glad to know this morning it's not my purpose to give you a full briefing on the Protestant Reformation. But I want you to understand that these things weren't just intellectual, academic propositions for these men. Uh, Nor did Luther set out at first to divide the church into Catholic and Protestant. Uh, And he certainly never intended to give birth to something called Lutheranism. His hope was to bring a needed reformation to the one church that he loved and served. And for for Luther, in particular, the reformation that he spawned changed everything. It changed his life, it changed the church, it changed the world. What I want to do this morning is to lead us in consideration of five principles, five doctrinal pillars that emerged in retrospect after the dust had settled and, and others had opportunity looking back to to kind of distill the major impacts of the Reformation on the life of the individual Christian. So these are these are things that were understood after the fact to be the major uh, emphases, major impacts of the Protestant Reformation. They've become known as the five solas because uh, each one is expressed in Latin, uh, and each begins with the Latin word sola, which means alone or only. So the five solas are sola gratia, or grace alone, sola fide, or faith alone, 
Solus Christus, or Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, or glory to God alone. And together, these five solas answer the question, how is it that a sinful person can stand in the presence of a holy God? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. So let's take them one by one. First of all, sola gratia, grace alone. To say sola gratia is to assert that, so, by the way, let me, let me just take a step back. Any of you recognize the name Vince Lombardi? Yeah. Legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. The Super Bowl trophy is called the Lombardi Trophy. At the start of every football season, with all these professional football players, he would stand up in the first meeting and, and say, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> and he'll start with the basics. And, that, and that's really what I'm trying to do uh, this morning uh, to to just lay out some the basics of the Reformation that resulted in a rediscovery of essential Christianity. So back to sola gratia. To say sola gratia is to assert that salvation is by grace alone, meaning that the entirety of our salvation, from beginning to end is a gift from God. Another way of saying that is we can't earn our salvation. We can't merit our salvation. Salvation is an undeserved gift. It's freely given by God. In fact, the grace that saves us, as John Newton so famously wrote, is amazing because it doesn't originate with us at all. But it originates with God's Mercy in eternity, even eternity past. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.4, isn't that an interesting expression, by the way, eternity past? Because eternity just is. But, but that's the way we have to understand it, right? Now I have to go back and find my place. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So if he chose us before the foundation of the world, before creation, before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad, before we had a chance to choose him or reject him, then our salvation really is all a gift of grace. Paul went on in chapter 2 of Ephesians and said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now there's far more in that passage than I have time or intention to unpack. But notice with me that Paul says, by grace you have been saved twice in this short passage. By grace you have been saved. And the first one comes after he says that our spiritual condition before Christ and apart from him was that we were dead in our trespasses. That is, that our sin had killed us. So why does Paul interject, by grace you have been saved, after that? It's because his love and his grace were extended to us while we were separated from God and spiritually dead. In Romans 5, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Dead people, have you ever noticed this? Dead people can't make any contribution at all to their resurrection from the dead. Notice that? Kind of unresponsive, aren't they? And when Jesus stood before the tomb of his friend Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had no say in the matter. Right? He provided no assistance to Jesus in that process. He made no contribution whatsoever to his own resurrection. In fact, Jesus had to tell other, the others around to remove his grave clothes. He couldn't even do that. It's like the return of the mummy as he came forth. Second Corinthians 9, 8, Paul said, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, the enablement that equips sinful people like you and me to do things that please a holy God has to come from Him, not from us. Paul says that God's grace abounds to us so that we have, notice three times, all sufficiency in all things at all times so that we may abound in every good work. It's all from him. It's all grace. Now notice what Paul says in Romans 11, 5, and 6. Grace eliminates any claim that we might have to a say in our salvation. We're chosen by grace, quite apart from any works. If it were otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If we have to work for our salvation, then we are lost. Because we can never do enough on our own to please a holy and a righteous God. Romans 11, 5 and 6, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Salvation by grace alone means that God has accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. There's never been any other route to God. Wayne Grudem is a contemporary author. He wrote a book called Systematic Theology. And in that book, uh, his definition of grace puts it very plainly. He says God's grace means God's goodness toward those 
who deserve only punishment. So there's no room for pride when you're a recipient of grace. R.C. Sproul adds, perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for salvation. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly reward system. We want to earn our way and atone for our own sins. Like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. We, we like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve, we deserve to be there. Well, let's let Martin Luther have the last word on sola gratia this morning. He wrote, he who does not receive salvation purely through grace, independently of all good works, certainly will never secure it. Next is sola fide, faith alone. Romans 3, 21 to 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In discovering this principle that the righteous will live by faith, Luther discovered the key that liberated him from his own fear of having to earn the grace of God. And that enabled him to reorder faith and works. Faith works are the result, the outcome, the product of God's free gift of righteousness rather than the cause that merits God's favor. In other words, we don't become righteous by doing righteous things. Righteous actions, righteous deeds. But rather, having been made righteous, we are enabled to do righteous deeds. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And God declares us righteous, that is right with him, not on the basis of something in us, but only on the basis of what Luther called, this is his term, an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. The righteousness of Christ downloaded to us.
his righteousness, not ours. Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, we are saved then by the grace of God alone that is appropriated by faith alone. There's nothing that that we did to merit God's grace, and there's not a single work that we can do that, that can or ever will result in our justification. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not even the faith, came from you. It too is a gift of God's grace. So to be justified means that it is, and I love this way of of understanding it, to be justified means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. As I stand before God and by by his grace and through faith, it's just as if I had never sinned. Having been justified by faith, Paul wrote there in Romans 5, 1, we have peace, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's allow the reformer John Calvin to close out this section for us. He wrote, faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Finally, or, or then next, solus Christus, Christ alone. Go back with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want you to just see some some phrases and some words in that passage. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God that becomes ours, that is imparted to us through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the the having been made new, where the old, old person we were passes away. It was dead anyway. God makes us alive in Christ, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And then there's the word propitiation at verse 25. Well, that's a, like a, that's like a $25 word, right? Propitiation. 
What does it mean? It means a sacrifice that is offered to God that has as its intent and as its result that the wrath of God is turned away from the sinner. In this case, propitiation was the turning away of the wrath of God by the shedding of his, the blood of his son, Jesus. In other words, God, by sending his son to die for us, propitiated his own wrath. He, he made the way for his own wrath to be turned away. Jesus is our wrath absorber, if you will. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? How is it that that God can let sinners off scot-free? If you're Scottish, I apologize. How can God allow sinners off scot-free without paying up? That's the question. When we say that he might be just. Well, what about that horrible serial killer? How, how come God didn't nail him? How come he gets to go to heaven? How come the thief on the cross next to Jesus got to go to heaven? What's up? God is just because he poured out his justice on Jesus so that he didn't have to pour it out on us. It was his choice. And he was just in that action. His his wrath had to be satisfied and he poured it out on his own son so that he might be just and the, then the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus as we put our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us there at the cross, absorbing God's wrath and bearing our sins. We receive justification from God. See, you believe in Jesus and that's enough. That's enough for me. Because my wrath has already been slaked. It's already been satisfied because I poured it out on my own son. Writer of Hebrews wrote similarly, he entered, speaking of Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by holy places meaning the temple. The concept is the temple. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, referring to the old sacrificial system, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. And in saying that, he's saying that Jesus is the high priest who offered the sacrifice for sin once for all, but also that he himself is that sacrifice. That the shedding of his own blood secured our eternal salvation. And so Paul wrote to the Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's he saying there? He's saying that the very attempt to earn our salvation, to somehow merit righteousness through works of the law, 
is to nullify the grace of God. Why? Because you're effectively choosing a different track than the one that Christ is on, the one that God provided through Christ. And and that's where he goes in chapter 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, there's an example, Gentiles accepting circumcision because they believe that somehow that's going to make them more acceptable to God, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So understand what he's saying there. I mean, we, we toss that expression, falling away from grace, around, and we think that somehow it's because of something bad that somebody did that they fell from grace. In this case, Paul is saying, I guess he coined the term there, right? Falling away from grace. And that is choosing works over justification by faith. So knock yourself out, but you're not going to get to heaven. By choosing works over faith, you've fallen from grace. Paul wrote in Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Christ's. Whose sin? Mine. Yours. Ours. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Not Christ plus anything. That is, any works, any merit, any endless attempts to somehow please God and be made right with Him by our own efforts. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul wrote, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The reformer Ulrich Zwingli once wrote, God gives us everything in the name of Christ. Hence, we need no other intercessors, no other mediators. The Roman Catholic Church in those days, as in many respects still true, a person couldn't come to God on their own. They had to go to and through their priest as their mediator, as their intercessor in order to relate in any way to God. But Jesus came along and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One God, one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So Christ alone, not Christ plus anyone. Not a priest, nor a bishop, nor a pope. Isn't that good news? Just Jesus. 
Next is sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And I also want to insert here sola scriptura, not prima scriptura. Sola scriptura means that only scripture is our sufficient authority. Prima scriptura holds that while the biblical scripture is primary, prima, primary, there are other guides for what a Christian should believe, how he or she should live. And those other guides in Luther's day included the tradition of the church, the teachings of the papacy, the councils and the creeds. But God's word says, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 of itself, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the scriptures are complete in themselves. We don't need other sources. We don't need other guides. And in fact, we should not pursue other guides. We should come to know the word of God. And that statement can't be made about the teachings of the church, right? Apart from scripture. While the Bible has many writers, it has only one divine author. The Apostle Peter spoke to that very fact. Second Peter 1, 20 to 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about the, by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Belgic Confession of 1561 expressed this really well. It says that we believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. I like that. Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. How was it delivered? Through the prophets and the apostles. Galatians 1.8, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what gives authority to the writings of the apostles and the prophets. The, the Bible is the ultimate and decisive authority in all matters of faith and conduct, faith and lifestyle. When I was a kid uh, toddling around our house, preschooler, I remember my mom used to listen to, every day she would listen to a, a Christian radio show called the Back to the Bible Broadcast. Any of you... Remember that? It's a nationwide show. The Back to the Bible broadcast. We can think of the Reformation in part 
and that really at its core, as a back-to-the-Bible movement that was helped greatly by the invention of the printing press. Thank God for Gutenberg and Erasmus. And, and, and it's really interesting how God works, right, and orchestrates history because the, the printing press came in just as the Reformation came in. And, and uh, so things were disseminated in a way they had not been before. Well, we'll let Martin Luther have the last word on this section. He said, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Finally, the fifth sola, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Do you know that Johann Sebastian Bach, at the end of all of his um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Composing. Every one of his compositions. At the end, he put the letters S, D, G. Soli Deo Gloria. The glory of God alone. And at the beginning of each of his compositions, it said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Martin Luther wrote this, God has surely promised his grace to the humbled, that is, to those who mourn and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. Alien righteousness. To say soli deo gloria is to say that God alone receives the glory in everything, including and especially our salvation. It's all his work. He is glorified by his grace. He is glorified by his mercy, his love, his kindness to sinners like us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's let this be our benediction, Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Paul writing overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the grace of God. Romans 11, and he just breaks into worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him, 
and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. God used men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, imperfect men, very imperfect men. But he called them and he used them and others to reform the church by restoring some truths that were in serious danger of being lost forever in the church, to the church. So on this Reformation Sunday, we should especially pause to give thanks for those guys and for God's gracious work in them and through them that has come down to us. Salvation is, read it with me, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's read that again. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these memories. We thank you that you used a man like Luther, like John Calvin, like Ulrich Zwingli, and others like them, with them, around them, to recapture the gospel that was so in danger of being lost. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to your glory alone. As we come now to your table, we celebrate those truths because in celebrating communion, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate your love toward us in Christ, your grace toward us, your power that's available to us, the the forgiveness brought to us through the cross, the hope of eternal life brought to us through the empty tomb. So would you, in these final moments that we have together, do as you did to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Reveal yourself to us in the breaking of the bread. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.